6 to 7 p.m. Sport on with Tabiso Musia. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us on SAFM Spot On with me, Tabiso Musia, Katlako Mudiba, Timothy produced the show, and uh, Sylvester Kumane is our technical producer. It's because it is Flashback Friday, and every Friday we like to catch up with our sporting stars or heroes of years gone by and look back at their careers, their lows and their highs, while also using uh, the opportunity to educate the younger generation or our non-sporting listeners who are tuned in about the history of South African sport. Tonight, it's my pleasure to say that our guest for the next hour is former Springboks coach Jake White who won the Rugby World Cup in 2007 in France which as uh, which was South African Rugby's second World Cup triumph. It's now three after what the box did in Japan last year and Jake White will take us through his meticulous planning that has been credited for winning that World Cup in 07. It will also be interesting to find out from Jake White if there are any similarities with the box win in Japan last year and that victory in 2007 in France where I'm sure we remember those images of President Tabo being hoisted by John Smith and the rest of the team after their victory over England in the final who the box played also in the 2019 final but as many might know uh, the coaching job of any South African sports team has its own challenges and Jake White had a lot to deal with during his time especially when it came to transformation uh, he always seemed to be at loggerheads with the men in the suits who employed him so was he misunderstood or was uh, Jake White stubborn uh, the biggest saga for me has to be player number 46 Luke Watson if you remember that story and how he was added to the squad a lot was said during and after that time uh, of course and uh, Jake White has now been appointed as the director of rugby at the Bulls uh, so it's another fresh start for him and will he will take over the coaching reins from Potter Human as early as next year from what we've been told so there's plenty to talk about uh, with coach Jake White and uh, if you want to speak to him uh, have him answer some of your burning questions feel free to call us uh, on 0891 or you can send us voice notes on WhatsApp that number for voice notes is 061-4104-107 and our SMS number is 41391 the number to dial if you want to call in 0891-104-207. The Sport Diary has changed due to COVID-19 pandemic. This Wednesday, Sport at 10 will be replaced by perfection. It is all about the best in the world of sport. Best moments live forever. LeBron James, all hail the king. Diego Maradona, 1986 World Cup. Tom Daly making a splash, becoming a world champion at the age of 15. Perfection is what the best in the world aim for. Catch it this Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on SABC One. Brought to you by SABC Sports. For the love of the game. SABC Two brings you My People, a show that gives you an opportunity to resolve family disputes, conflicts, and feuds. Sometimes things can and do go wrong and we are not always sure what to do. If your family is divided because of a feud, we can help. Email us at mypeople at fullcircleproductions.co.za to tell us your story. Also talk to us via our social media platforms. Zanzi's Sporting Milestones, Moments and Stories. Flashback Fridays with Tabiso Musia. And as I mentioned, it's our honor. I think we are blessed tonight to be in conversation with former Springbok coach uh, Jake White. I've already seen the reaction on social media when we started tweeting about an hour ago. Lots of people have a lot of respect and time uh, for Coach Jake White for what he did and uh, and, and basically how honest he was during his uh, tenure as a Springbok uh, coach. And uh, he joins us now on the line. Coach, good evening and thank you very much for agreeing to speak to us on SAFM uh, tonight. Yeah, good evening, Tabisu. I'm very honoured and very privileged to chat to you guys tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. It's our pleasure. Firstly, how has the lockdown been for you? Is it frustrating? Because I'm sure you'd have liked to hit the ground running at the Bulls. Yeah, it has been a bit frustrating, although I must say, selfishly, it's probably helped us a little bit in that, uh, you know, the Bulls weren't doing too well, Tabisu. And <laughs> so now it gives me time, three weeks, to sort of do look at things and, uh, I suppose, try and catch up to the other teams that were really doing well in the beginning of the year. And how did that move come about, Coach? Were you approached or did you offer your expertise to the Bulls? Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, it's all about timing to be so. You know, I've just come back from Japan. I was coaching in Japan and uh, I've obviously, um, you know, finished a three-year deal there. Yes. And I was actually waiting to see what other options there were. And as it turned out, the Bulls decided that they would like to 
chat to me about options going forward. So, you know, they had they had mentioned it to me before, but you know, I was in I was in Japan and when I got back now they asked me again and I was I actually got my agent to chat to them. I thought it might be a good good combination. You were also linked with a move to the Kings in the Eastern Cape. Was there any truth to that? And if so, how far did that process go? Yeah, you know, obviously when you when you got no job or you're looking for a coaching job in the Kings again, I, I met a couple of the Kings guys that went down to watch the cricket and they were very, very kind. They were also, you know, trying really hard now as they are to try and get up to the next level. They know they're not doing as well as they would like. Um, so they did chat to me about it, but there was never any formal discussions or any formal meetings. It was more just... You know, spending some time at the cricket and talking to a couple of the of the key decision makers in in PE. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, it would have been a nice challenge, but as it's turned out, the Bulls has come up, and I'm really fortunate that you know I can work with the Bulls team. There has been a lot of talk uh, after your appointment was made uh, official coach uh, at the Bulls. Some say it's a mismatch, but you do have a connection because in your book you do mention that you actually started school in Pretoria. I started primary school there. My, my very first, I mean, my folks lived, my parents lived about, you know, 10 minutes, not even 300 meters from the, from the uh, Turkey's rugby field. So, and I was very close to Loftus as well. So, yeah, but there's a lot of history there. My dad was a fanatical Blue Bull supporter. Uh, he went to university in the University of Pretoria. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like the circle's completing itself. Yes. And, and what are you hoping to achieve in your, in your, in your time as director of rugby at the Bulls? Well, I'm hoping to achieve some success by winning trophies. I'm also hoping to create something that's long-lasting. I think one thing that the Bulls, when I met with them, that they feel they probably haven't achieved as well as they would like over the past couple of years is they've gone from extreme highs to extreme lows, and they would like to consistently be, be the, the top team, if not one of the best teams in, in the world. So hopefully that'll be part of the of the plan we'll try and put together, is create some immediate success, but also are really hard to make sure that the Bulls stay one of the top sides in the world. Before we look at what you achieved over the years, Coach Jack White, firstly, let's start off with last year's Rugby World Cup. Before the tournament, how did you rate the Springboks' chances of going all the way to lift the trophy? Well, let's be fair. For the last two, three years before the World Cup, they weren't in a great place. I mean, they were they were getting, you know, uh, big losses uh, against all the top teams. Um, but to be you know, I, I was always confident that when I saw the draw, that the draw was actually in our favour. One, mm. one of the things that we realised is that you wouldn't have to play the All Blacks again until the final. So, you know, I, I looked at the draw and I realised if you if you watch some of the shows on Supersport, I, I predicted that what would happen is South Africa would play New Zealand in the final. I thought that once we had once we had finished that first game, we would be the two strongest teams and we'd go all the way around and play each other again in the final. As it happened, England beat the All Blacks and we ended up beating England. So. Mm. Yeah, I, I was always confident that we'd make the final based on the fact that that we had a relatively a relatively easy easier draw than some of the other big nations. And did you did you tip the box to beat England in that final? I was sure they'd beat England. I mean, I, I spoke. I was actually in Japan and I spoke at a luncheon before the final, and I, you know, I was spot on. I, d- I didn't think that England uh, had what it needed to be uh, had had what it took to beat the South African forward pack. You know, and you look carefully. From minute one, the, the England pack were, were in their back foot. Mm. You know, a lot of them say it's because Sinclair got knocked out in the first minute, but I really believe it would have made no difference. I think South Africa's forward pack, as I said many times on shows before I left to go to, uh, to Japan, uh, we're the, by far the best forward pack in the world. And, and some of our players that were on our bench were good enough to start in most of the other countries' starting lineups. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was fully confident that once we played England, now, the one thing about South Africans is they, they know how to beat England, especially in World Cup finals. <laughs> and uh, yes, we actually spoke to Eddie Jones about it uh, uh, last year and he was praising Coach Rasia Rasmus for how he went back to the basics and used the box physicality basically throughout the tournament. And that's how he feels that they clinched uh, the World Cup. But let's talk about you, Coach Jack White, and uh, that, that, the success that you achieved. Before we focus on the 07 World Cup and how you did it, how crucial was that period you spent with the under-21s as assistant uh, to Coach Eric and then as coach and winning the World Championships? Very, very, very. It was very important in the, in the whole makeup of that Springbok team. And as you mentioned, I coached with Eric Saul as an assistant. We, we, we won that. It wasn't quite a World Cup, but it was similar to a World Cup. It was a a Sanzar tournament, but in that tournament we beat France, we beat New Zealand, we beat Australia, we beat Wales, and we beat England. So in in a in a in a 
in a funny sort of way, we were world champions of the juniors in 99. And in that team, it was John Smith who was the captain of that team. And a lot of those players then carried on being Springbok players. And then in 2002, when I went to the junior side and played at Ellis Park and beat Australia in the final, we also beat France, we beat Australia and New Zealand in, in that tournament. And that team was Ricky January, Fareed Dupria, Jacques Cronier, Pedri Vandenberg, Gatros Tienkamp, Gary Boerta, Jean de Villiers, Ashwin Willemser. A lot of those players then played in the World Cup team that played in 2007. So, to be sorry, it was... It was it was a lot of people thought, you know, I only coached Springboks for four years, but yeah. in a lot of in a lot of ways, I'd coached those same players for about eight years. And uh, you know, all I all I knew was that if I got those players together, they'd been world champions as juniors. There'd be no reason why, at the same age group, the 24, 25, 26 years old, those guys couldn't be world champions again against the same people they beat at junior level. Clyde Rathbone, born in Durban, was the captain of your under-21s in 02. What do you make of how his career turned out, coach, as he ended up playing for Australia? Well, you know, it was a very tough call for him. I tried really hard to keep him in South Africa, but at that time he had uh, he'd been offered something at the Brumbies. He was looking at emigrating with his parents to, to Australia. It wasn't just a rugby decision. I think his whole family wanted to emigrate. As it turned out to be so, his whole family is actually in Australia now. Yeah. Um, so it was a decision, as I said, more than rugby for his family to go and live in Australia. It was quite ironic because, I mean, he obviously had a great career in South Africa, had a wonderful career in Australia, played for the Wallabies. But in the last, you know, the last back end of his career, he played for the Brumbies when I was coaching the Brumbies. So yes. at least I did get to coach him after under-21s again. Was he a centre or a winger? Well, he was a centre for us as a junior but he moved to the wing in Australia they felt that he added more on the wing for them but I think he was such a versatile player that he, you know, that he could play both And from that group that you've mentioned or the group that you coached in the juniors is there anyone that you feel didn't fulfill their potential maybe? Um, no look I think I was quite lucky in that a lot of those players went through and they played from South Africa and then a lot of them then played 100 test matches you look yeah. at guys like Juan Smith it was in that junior team, and you look at Gatso Skien Company, you look at, you know, Fareed Dupria, and I mean, as I said, the name John Smith, who played 100 tests as well. I mean, a lot of those guys who were in those junior teams, they, they didn't just become Springboks for one or two tests. They became household names, and as I said, they played, a lot of them played, most of them played over 50s, a lot of them played 100. And before you actually went to the box full time, you were also roped in by Coach Nick Mullet. How do you look back at that time under Coach Mullet? I think it was the period where the box went on that 16 or 17 game winning streak. Exactly that, to be so. I was very fortunate in my time with the Springboks. You know, my very first tour, I went as a video analyst with uh, Nick Mullet and Alan Solomon. And we, you know, we, not only that tour, but for the first 16 test matches, we never lost. You know, so it was, I actually thought I was, I was in a dream. You know, it was fantastic. I joined the Springboks. Even if it was such a minor role, to be in the change room and, and sit with the change room with all those with those wonderful players, and then week in and week out win was was something that I really enjoyed, and it was very important for my development as a coach as well. You know, one of the things I don't know if you know to be so, but Mourinho, who's a football coach now, who coached Man United and he coaches Tottenham Hotspur, and I used to coach uh, Chelsea. Mm. He made it as a coach because he was a translator. He used to translate for coaches, and he you know he used to sit in the change room, and that was the route that he took in order to become a, a top-class football coach. Now, you know, mine's a bit different. I was a yeah. school teacher for 10 years. Then I was a video analyst with Nick. I was a fitness trainer with Ray Maud for the Lions. And I have no doubt that all those little things that are in that, and, and then was a head coach of the schoolboy team. And I've got no doubt that all those experiences I picked up were the things that helped me when I eventually became a head coach. I remember the story of Jose Mourinho at Barcelona where he was an interpreter back um, in the 90s. You also worked with Harry Phil Yoon, who you say was way ahead of the times. Why was that? Well, he was, at that stage, he was a businessman and it was the, probably the first coach who's ever coached that didn't really need the job for the money. You know? So in a lot of ways, uh, you know, you can imagine generally how it worked is that coaches used to be a career. For him, it was a bit of a passion and a hobby. I think it was the end of his time in that he wanted the Springboks to be professional. You know, he was very, very big on, on answering emails and very big on being professional and being well-dressed and, and, and off the field being as professional as we could. And, and, I, and I think it probably got lost a little bit uh, in terms of the fact that, as I said, he was just a little bit ahead of his time. So for the for the average rugby player, I think they thought that um, you know 
they thought that he had, he was focusing on things that weren't important. But I think looking back, you know, he was obviously focusing on things that he knew. But if they got those things right, that on the field stuff would have also improved. Is it true that he instructed the box not to kick in Argentina? Jeez, that was an amazing story, Toby. So you know, I'll never forget. I um, we he bought everyone a rugby ball and he gave everyone a rugby ball when we first got together. So I think there were 40 guys in the squad. Every guy had to have a rugby ball had his name on it. He had to walk around with his rugby ball the whole the whole day, every day. Every meeting, everywhere, he had to be seen. He had to go to dinner, breakfast, lunch, everything with his rugby ball. And the, the, the theory was that he said, if you have a rugby ball in your hands all the time, we're not going to kick it. We're going to run with it and catch it and pass it. And our skills are going to get better. And then we got to Argentina and I, I met the referee. The referee was a guy called Scott Young. And I went to him and I said to him, listen, we're going to run from everywhere. We're not going to kick. And he said, yeah, 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 Jake, I agree. I said, listen, you're not listening. We're not going to kick. We're going to run from everywhere. So can you do me a favor and watch all sides? And can you make sure that, you know, that we get rewarded for keeping the ball? Because, we, you know, we, we don't want it. they've got to make sure that they, they don't go offside, as I said. And, and also, if they tired, you've got to let us play quickly because we want to try and outwork them and outpace them. <laughs> and I remember that we played. We played for 73 minutes before Monty uh, got told by, by Harry through me, <laughs> okay, you can tell him now to kick. You can now kick because... Now, obviously, uh, we, we caught them by such surprise by playing 73 minutes without kicking. It was incredible. I mean, it was one of, one of the most amazing memories I've ever had in rugby. Now, you, you got the call to apply for the book job. You were in Australia at the time. Was it something you had to think twice about it, Coach Jake, or did you put your hand up immediately? Never, ever had to think twice to be so. To coach your country would have been probably, and you know, it was unheard of in my day to be a non-Springbok and coach South Africa. Um, I was a schoolmaster, as I told you. Yes. I was in Australia. Funny enough, I was visiting Clyde Rathbone. and I was actually <laughs> spending time with the Brumbies watching them train. Um, and I got a call saying, please, would you would you apply? And I actually, I said, of course I'll apply, but as long as it's a genuine application, not just an application to put my name in the file where I knew that they had really appointed someone. And Remember Arthur Peterson saying to me, who phoned me, he said, no, no, Jake, this is a genuine plea for you to actually put your name in the hat, which I obviously did and applied and went through the process. And, you know, I'll never forget on Friday the 13th of February, I got appointed a Springbok coach. Yes, and uh, and you appointed Alistair Kutsier, and I think it was Gert Smal as your assistant. So what was the thinking there? Well, the thing was, I'd known Alistair before. I mean, uh, he was then selector. He was a talented. It was crazy because he wanted to coach, but they put him in the role of selecting. And I thought Chad Smile, who had been a Springbok, and uh, he was actually a great Springbok, great forwards coach, had been a head coach for a while. And you know, I just thought that if I get a backs coach and a forwards coach of the caliber of those two guys, that then we'd be a great team together. And, you know, then I was also lucky enough to get Derry Kutsia, the fitness coach, and I got Henning Kierikain as, as, a, as a psychologist. But Cheryl Calder in who helped with the eyes and she's subsequently gone on and been a part of you know a lot of successful teams. And then as I said, part of the you know, the medical staff and all that, we actually had a really great bond together. You mentioned Dr. Herring Harika. We actually spoke to him on the show, I think it was sometime last year, and um he spoke highly of you. Usually, actually, Coach Jake, when we do these interviews on a Friday, we bring in a lot of people to come and talk about our guests as we look back and celebrate their careers. But tonight, it's, it's going to be different because we've actually found clips from a lot of people that we've spoken to over the past two years at different times uh, that actually speak highly of you. And you'll hear that as we go along. Let's pull this one from Dr. Henning Harika from last year. So just before the World Cup, I remember we got all, all the players mentioned one person that had the biggest influence in their lives. I asked them about it and they gave me the name of that person. And I got that person, each one of them, it was a coach maybe or a parent and they, they flew into, we were in Durban those days mm. or we for our training camp and that, that 30 people because we were 30 players, that 30 people joined that 30 players that evening oh. and we bonded as a family and then we knew that we're going to win the World Cup because we have family we We've got something going, so you need to drive that dream and you need to talk about it all the time. And then it becomes part of your subconscious mind that you really start believing we really can do it. He talks about the role that he played. How do you describe the role that uh, they called him the cop doctor at the time? And it was something unusual in professional sport. So he was was very, very important for us. You know, people people don't understand the role that psychologists play in, in teams. You know, a lot of a lot of the work he did was individuals one-on-one. You know, people think he only did it in team sessions, but you can imagine a lot of players who earn a lot of money 
and they're relatively young and they have the world at their feet. They have other issues that they've got to work on. So, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't talk about those because that's part of his professional uh, life and that's part of his professional career. But, I mean, he often gave me feedback about some players that needed to be guided and how he had, you know, sat down individually. He never actually spoke about the detail, but I've got no doubt in my mind that the role he played, you know, individually and collectively as a group with the team was fantastic. You also took over a team called Sheikh White that had just come out of Camp Staldride. How how was the morale? How low was it? And how did you get these guys back mentally? Or was it also through the help of Dr. Kharika? Well, there again, he played such a massive role because he obviously realized that, you know, they would have needed to be guided through that as well. Let's not forget the, the average player that played is 23, 24, 25 years old. They're relatively young. So he did spend a lot of time on that. But, you know, I recall to be so one of the things that I'll never forget is when I spoke to John Smith, the captain, and they'd come out of that, you know, as you say, comp style drive, but also out of a really unsuccessful World Cup campaign. Mm. And they were actually, you know, jokes were being made about them and you know, we weren't winning games, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember him saying to me, you can do whatever you want, tell us whatever you want, help us whatever you want. We will do whatever you want us to do as long as we start winning because we can't carry on like this. So in a lot of ways, it was also, I wouldn't say an easier time, but a much more much more uh, easier time than it would have been with them if, they had, if they had been relatively successful. They were so down that they were willing to, to really sacrifice anything they had to to make sure we could turn the corner, which, as I said, which is what coaches want. If you want to hear players say, listen, we'll do whatever you want. And you did mention John Smith just now. It was one of the first decisions you made to make him captain. Uh, you said it was a no-brainer at the time, and you respect him as a rugby player and as a man. Why is that? So, Bisa, I must say, when you ask me all these questions, you've obviously done a lot of homework because everything you're asking me, obviously, I mean, it's, it's very impressive to hear how much you know. But, look, I knew John Smith from school. I tried to recruit him to come to Transvaal Rugby Union when he was at Pretoria Boys High. He was the captain of the Blue Bulls Craven Week team, and I tried to get him across to come and play at the Lions. His loyalty to the Bulls was obviously massive, and he decided to stay at the Bulls. Oh, sorry, he actually moved to the Sharks, yeah. and uh, and he, I thought that was a bit odd because I thought he would stay with the Bulls. Anyway, as it turned out, he actually ended up playing senior rugby relatively young. Uh, we stayed in contact. He then became captain of that under-21 team that I mentioned earlier under Eric Souls, and they won that tournament. And I just saw that he had the ability to actually captain across the diversity in South Africa. He could talk to Ricky January. He could have coffee with an English private schoolboy. He could then walk outside and, and socialize with, you know, with uh, Lawrence Parker. So, I mean, the reality was, I think he, he was seen as the leader by, by everyone in the team. It didn't matter where they came from, rich or poor, colored, black, white. They, they saw him as the captain. So for me... When I got picked and I realized that I was going to be around for four years or hope to be around for four years, I thought I'd like to pick a captain who's actually going to be part of that journey. And at that stage, John was about 24 years old. And I just thought it was a no-brainer. We could have a captain that's relatively young and we could groom together and work together to, as we did, create something that was, was successful. And it sure was successful. We had to make sure that we are prepared uh, when we speak to a legend like you, Coach Jake White. I know a lot was said about your relationship with the team manager at the time, Mr. Zola Yeye, which you have cleared up over the years that you had no problem with him, but you felt that they were hiding the appointment maybe from you. He was actually also on our show last year and he spoke highly of you. Let's hear what he had to say. You know, our luck was when the All Blacks were knocked out of the tournament, you know, and, and then. And also, we managed to go over, we beat. Argentina in the semifinals. They were so sure. And Argentina then, they were a team uh, that was playing together, that believed in themselves, and, and they were sure that they want to beat us. But because we had an astute coach who managed to rope in uh, prudent individuals like Eddie Jones, brought him in, and they were able to do a proper kind of uh, remodeling of the team and, and, and make sure that if we do this, this is how, as a result, Jake has written there's a coaching manual, mm. how he has groomed his boys. Remember, he comes with them from under 21. Yeah. So they knew exactly what he wanted. They played for him and they played for the country. That was Zola, yeah, yeah. How were you able then, Coach Jake, to put everything inside and, and work together to go on and win the World Cup? You know, to be so, when I listen, when I listen to that, I mean, obviously, as I said to you, that I knew that Zola's heart was in the right place. Yes. He really, I mean, he enjoyed every minute of being there. He was as honored, even he was as proud as anyone could be to be part of that. 
I mean, you look at the final whistle when the when the game finished. How happy he was! He was actually dancing on the field on his own there. I mean, almost almost uh, in a trance that he was so happy. So, I mean, I I do appreciate that that he. Was, I just at that stage, you can imagine leading up to that World Cup, there was so much. I'd been under so much pressure that I probably didn't trust anybody anymore. I got the feeling that I was sort of being bullied into selections and bullied into. Um, staffing selections, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I've said it to you many times, you know, that I, having looked down, having, and let's not forget as well, to be so I was 43 years old. You know, mm. 40 years old when I was in the spring box. So I was a very young guy, and I, at that point in time, I was probably so paranoid about about th- the way things were happening around me. You know, looking back now, I'm, I've got no doubt that that uh, Zolo was really good value. He worked as hard as he could, and as, as you hear now, I mean, this is years ago, and he's yeah. still as passionate about having been part of that in his voice. You can hear how happy he was. Okay, let's go to some of the voice notes that have come through on 0614104107. We are talking to former Springboks coach and now the director of rugby at the Bulls, um, uh, Coach Jake White. Hi, Tabi. So, Zico Smith, all the way from Macau, and then good evening to the coach. Let me first start by apologizing, coach. I haven't finished your book in black and white. I don't know what disturbed me, but I'll make sure I'll go back and try to finish it. And then welcome to the Blue Bulls, coach. Uh, But coach, my question is on about transformation. Is South African rugby transformed to your satisfaction? If not, what needs to be done? And is Blue Bulls also transformed to your satisfaction? And if not, what are you going to do to make sure that uh, Blue Bulls is representing all South Africans? Thank you. Okay, thanks for that, uh, Zico Smith. Make sure you finish the book. It's a very good one. How do you respond to that, Coach? Um, well, firstly, let me say, I, I think transformation is very important. I think that if you look at the teams that will be so, when I coached in 2004, mm. 2005, we played nine players, uh, and I want to say off color, but uh, you know, nine players of color against Australia. That's more than any team's played in a long, long time together for South Africa. So I'm, I'm a genuine. Uh, a believer in the fact that we need to transform, we need to be genuine about it as well. I think the, the thing about transformation, it's got to be genuine. It can't be a numbers thing. I've always said that as well. You can't, can't put a number to transformation. I think that that is a real degrading thing for any player in a team. If you say you have to have two or three players or five or six, whatever, then the players in the change room always feel they're getting picked on a number based and not on their on their on their ability. So. Yeah, my, my answer to that is simple to me. The one has to be genuine about it, one has to be fair to it, and I think that all athletes want to feel as though you're treating them equally and you're treating them the same way they expect to be treated. And that, that for me, is the secret of getting transformation. In terms of the Bulls, you know, I, I, I will tell you that you know, it's not for me to judge by the, whether they're doing well enough or not well enough. All I will say to you is that part of my plan and part of my job is to make sure that we transform and we're genuine about it, and we create opportunities for coaches and players at the Bulls to come through and play and coach at the highest level. You you had a lot of transformation battles during your time as Bok coach, as it happens with any coach that's coaching a South African team, any sporting codes. There was the issue with Kabamba Flores after he had that good Curry Cup r- r- final. Uh, there was Bola Conradi over Furi Dupree. There was an issue with the Ndungane brothers, Brayton and Jacques Furi also. But the biggest one has to be player number 46, Coach Jake White, when Luke Watson was added to your box squad after numerous consultations. In that situation, what disappointed you the most? Was it the fact that you were accused of being anti the Watsons because of what they'd done during apartheid or the fact that nobody respected your decision, which you had said was based on rugby reasons? To be so, what I, what, what I didn't enjoy is that when you pick 45 and they put in 46, and that, that in principle is very relevant to who the person is, the, you know, the background, whatever. If mm. they ask for 45-man squad and they pick 46, they go to a function and they call out 46 players. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, that, that can't be that can't be a respected thing. Um, in terms of all those other issues, I mean, that's the the, the, thing, the point. Is you, I, I think that I have no problem about being genuine about transformation, but then they must leave it in your hands. They mustn't get people interfering and trying to do it their way as well. All those players, I rated those players, but you can only, you know, you can't, you can't pick everybody and you can't make everybody happy. There's sometimes you've got to be the guy that, ca- that makes that decision. You know, when, I think one of the hardest things about being a coach is that, or the most difficult things about being a coach is when you don't pick someone or you have to drop someone. And that is based a lot on, on the relationship you have or you create with a player. And if, if I'm picking guys, and dropping guys, then it's easy because I'm the guy that then can look the guy in the eyes and the face and say, "Look, this is what I think." But if I'm if I'm not picking the guy, 
and someone else is picking it above me and pushing the player into a team, no matter who he is, and then you expect me to drop him or vice versa. You know, the, I pick him and then you drop him. It also doesn't really help the, the cause. But I do think that over time that's changed now. You look at the way South African rugby is now. You look at the way coaches are now. You look at Rashi's role. He gets to pick his own management team. He gets to pick overseas-based players. He gets to... I think that's the way it should be. And if you look at it, now we're successful. We're successful in, in transforming the team. We're successful in getting results. So, you know, maybe in a, in a roundabout way to be so coaches like myself and Nick Mallett and, you know, and Harry Pallion and, and Rude Australia and all those guys who, who basically fought for, for the things we believed in probably paid paid dividends because we actually now, as as we see, are getting those results both from the fact that they allow the coach to make those decisions and secondly, we're getting results as a team by winning World Cups. But you had a special bond with Ashwin Willems, uh, uh, Coach Jake White. Where did it come from? Because even at under-21 level, when you were selecting your teams, you had trials there. He had an injury. He wasn't part of the trials, but he was part of the camp. And uh, you went on to win the under-21 championship uh, with Ashwin and the Rugby World Cup, of course. To be so, what happened there was I was watching the Craven Week in Peter Maritzburg and I saw this player running down the wing and he just beat people one, two, three, four, five people at a time and and I thought to myself, this, this guy's an unbelievable rugby player. And I found out his name was Ashwin Valimsa. It was years ago, years before I became the Bob coach. Hmm. And then I started coaching in the 21s, and I, I saw this player there, and I said to him, what's the problem? And he said he had osteitis pubis. And I said, basically, in a nutshell, what that means is you can't do any exercise. The, the muscle and the, the fibers on your hip joint come loose. And so you hmm. can't run, you can't do anything because because of the pain that you get on your on your hip joints and inside your pelvis. And uh, anyway, I said to him, I still want you to come to every camp and I still want you to listen to everything that happens because when this takes time, if it takes two months or three months or whatever, by the time it's ready, you'll be picked anyway because I know how good you are as a rugby player. Anyway, obviously he came to every camp and then uh, it got to a point where um, we had to make a decision. And the doctor came to me and said to me, Jake, he wants to go home because he's scared that if he comes and plays and he breaks down, he will lose his contract at his, at his union. Hmm. Anyway, I called him to my room to be so, and I asked him, what's the story? And he said, no, you know, basically, you know, he, he, he looks after his family and he needs the money and he can't risk it. If it happens in the first five minutes of a friendly before the tournament, then he's out and then he won't get his contract renewed. So I basically gave him a check. I wrote out a check for the amount of money that he earned for the year at his union. And I said to him, I'll guarantee you can have that check. But if you play and you do well, you won't need that check anymore because you'll get a contract with a big union. So, I mean, I was very, very chuffed and very lucky and very blessed and very happy that what happened was he was one of the best players at the tournament. He got a... He got an unbelievable contract at the Lions. He got a, you know, he became a Springbok straight after that. He got a, obviously, massive bonus for becoming a Springbok, and his life changed after that. So, you know, I didn't have to give him the check of what I wrote out, but I mean, the, I just, I just there learned a lot about, you know, if you give a guy a chance and you back him. I'm um, all he needed to know was that he had the, he had the security and the and the and the faith that he could that could look after his family. That's all he needed to know, which. I suppose gave him gave him confidence, and that's why he played so well. On Twitter, Tammy says Ashwin was a special player. Anybody who's played rugby could see that from a mile away. What does Coach Jake uh, make of what happened to Ashwin on the set at SuperSport in 2018 and the aftermath? Uh, were you, what did you make of what happened with Ashwin? I'm sure you got wind of that, Coach Jake. Yeah, I was overseas, so I didn't really. I mean, I obviously heard it later than not on. Later on, I didn't, yeah. hear, I didn't see or hear it happen because I was living overseas. But yeah, I think Ashwin, you know, I mean, I think if anything, Ashwin probably learned out of that that there are other ways of, of sorting those things out. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't in his position. I can't answer for him. I can't understand, you know, it's, it's, when people are in different positions, they react differently. I just think in hindsight, Ashwin's bright enough and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he understands enough to know that what he did there and the way he did it was probably wrong. You know, he had a belief and he, you know, there's obviously, as I said, there probably would have been, in hindsight, would have been other ways of, of being able, if he wasn't happy, to maybe, you know, talk about it afterwards or talk to people about it and see if he could find a solution to that problem. 
Let's fast forward to 2007. Those who are just joining us, we're in conversation with former Springbok coach Jake White. 07 was a good year for South African rugby overall. Coach Jake, the Sharks and the Bulls reaching the Super Rugby final. What was key to that to that good year? Was it was it also coaches maybe buying into your plans uh, leading up to the World Cup? No, I don't think so. I don't think. It's, I mean, I, I don't think it was that. I mean, I'd be I'd be lying if I said to you that that it was because I was helping them and everyone yeah. buying into. It. I think what happened there was that I think the All Blacks probably made a mistake. They withdrew their best players out of Super Rugby for the first five weeks, which gave us a massive boost. So we ended up with two South African sides in the final, uh, and what that does is it creates a massive amount of belief and momentum to be so. So, you know, as much as as much as you know, I'm not taking anything away from the fact that the Bulls won, and that's great for us. Um, because what it did do, it actually created a bit of a, a groundswell in South Africa. We were then super rugby champions, and then we were going into the World Cup with two teams that played in the final. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, as I said, it would be wrong of me to say that everything was aligned from, from the head office point of view. I think it was more it was more just an opportunity which we used in our favour, and, and obviously the players took a massive amount of confidence out of that. You were dealt a big blow, though, when Rassi Rasmus took over the Stormers' job. You actually say um, in your in your book that Rassi did a lot of planning over a couple of months. He had added a lot of value. He's a hard-working guy who expends a lot of energy on the rugby field. We needed him at that point as everybody associated with the team was in need of stimulation. Was he another Harry Phil Yon? Was he ahead of the times already uh, during that time? Well, it was different to Harry Fulhu, and I'm saying Harry, you know, he was a lot more, lot more rugby detailed. I think Harry was a lot more off the field understanding about mm. how to be professional. Um, Rassi was just, you know, he was very good value. He was young at that stage. He was like really massive amounts of energy and passion, wanted to become a coach. Um, you know, had a great relationship with the players because some of them he had played against and he understood them. Um, and that's why I offered him an opportunity to come and work with us. I thought it'd be great to have an, a, another coach who, who had understood rugby the way that he does. Um, and as I said, it was a bit of a blow because when I came back from the Tri-Nations, he had decided that he was going to go and do the Stormers job. And I felt, understood it because he said, to be fair to him, he wanted to give the Stormers 100% of his time. He didn't think by going away to the World Cup and leaving the Stormers team training with his assistants would have had the same value as him coming and being here full-time. Ironically, it gave you a chance to bring in Eddie Jones. How do you describe the role that he played? Oh, Eddie was very important. I mean, Eddie was the only coach that was actually coaching that had, that had, that had played at a World Cup. I mean, that had coached at a World Cup. He had coached the World Cup before and lost to England in the final, which is, again, quite interesting because, you know, as it turned out, he's now coaching England. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, uh, you know, he would have, he would have, I would have thought that he would have understood the way that England would have beaten South Africa, but be that as it may, he was uh, he was he was a coach. He was available. You know, obviously a guy like Graham Henry was still coaching the All Blacks. You know, guys like Clive Woodward weren't coaching. So for me, it was if I was looking for someone to help me go to a World Cup, understand how a World Cup works, I, and I would have wouldn't there have been too many guys other than Eddie that I could have called on. And and I, I thought it'd be after having losing losing Rassi, it would be you know, a, a great opportunity for me to get someone else in there. And guess what? Eddie Jones was on our show a few weeks after um, he lost that World Cup final to the Springboks. And this is what he had to say about uh, Jake White. And for those who want to weigh in on the conversation, the lines are open, folks. 0891-104-207 if you want to call in or if you want to send voice notes, 061-4104-107. But let's hear from Eddie Jones when he was on SAFM. Eddie, what impressed you the most about Jake White? Was he someone who was always eager to learn? Because I believe he went to the Brumbies with Harry Yoon to go find out what you guys were doing right there. Yeah, he's a very curious guy. Um, also, outstanding selector. Uh, mm. Very good selector. Um, and also, I've never met a coach who had such a good feel for the game. He could see a game, could see what's eventuating very quickly and was able practically to be able to adjust or adapt to the particular game. And, and certainly, you know, his, his performance as the 2007 World Cup winning case was absolutely outstanding. That was, that was Eddie Jones. What do you make of what he had to say, Coach Jake? I'm sure you might have heard something like that before. Yeah, I actually haven't heard him say that before, so it's actually quite pleasing for him to say that uh, to me. So, yeah, but it's... Uh yeah, he played a massive role. I mean, he helped me a massive amount. I mean, as I said to you, one of the things I remember is that 
when you have a coach who's been to a World Cup final and you meet with a referee before the game and he asks certain questions, there's definitely a different kind of uh, intimidation to the referee than there would be that if you get there and you've never been to a World Cup before. So it wasn't just all the rugby stuff that he helped me with. It was also some of the planning and, and some of the, the foresight stuff he could see coming at World Cups. Did he or did he not get a Springbok blazer? We couldn't get that answer out of him. No, he never got a Springbok blazer. I mean, uh, when I say he never got his own official Springbok blazer, I think Brian Abana, out of kindness at the end of the World Cup, gave him his blazer. Um, but I don't think he ever officially got his own blazer. In fact, I know he never officially got his own blazer. Was it the culture because he was not South African? Well, I don't really know what the reasons were at that stage. I think people felt a bit uncomfortable about certain people felt a bit uncomfortable. I wasn't sure exact reasons. But, I mean, to be fair, uh, you know, it wasn't that he wasn't part of the team. He yes. wore everything other than a blazer. So the tracksuit, the training kit, uh, everything else with a springbok on it, he wore. So, you know, again, it wasn't like it was he had different kit to anyone else. It was just they felt that the blazer was probably one thing that was only given, which I find crazy because, I mean, if we had a foreign coach coaching South Africa, which we haven't had, what are we going to do? I mean, he'd have to wear the same blazer, surely. Well, he still got a gold medal, which is always better than a silver medal. Um, let's look at that tournament now. How big or crucial, from a confidence point of view, was that victory over England um, early on? It was a whitewash also. 36-0, I think. That was, uh, for some people, that was probably the best South Africa played at the World Cup ever. You know, I mean, obviously, other than this year, I'm talking about before that. At the World Cups, they thought that was one of the best performances and. uh as you say, to beat England 36-0. And let's not forget, so they were the current holders of the World Cup. They were the champions in 2003. So that was a massive statement. But, you know, we always knew that the first two games, Samoa and England, were going to be, be our two toughest games. And we decided that we we're going to focus on those two games and then we'd have a bit of downtime after that game. So, you know, the Wilds could come and join us after that game. So we, we were almost in very serious mode for those two games because we realized we win those two games, we were guaranteed of making it through to the playoffs. We weren't guaranteed of winning the pool, but we knew if we won those two games, we were guaranteed, even if we went as the second-best team, we'd go into the playoffs. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was pleasing to finish that game 36-0. It was pleasing to finish those two weeks unbeaten. And obviously, it was pleasing to know that we could go into the next round of competitions as the favourites to win the pool, which we knew was the first pass for us to win the World Cup. One of the players from that squad that we spoke to here on the show was Percy Montgomery. Let's hear what he had to say to us last year. Yeah, I think, you know, Jake's, I mean, every coach um, um, has his favorite players. And um, I think it's very important, you know, you could, and uh, I think Jake just knew how to manage uh, the players correctly. I don't know if it's because he was a school teacher at JP. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, you find a lot of, lot of the coaches now are actually school teachers. And yeah. it's how you handle the players. I think that plays a huge role in, um, in lifting and, um, and, and, and enhancing your game as a player. Coach Jake, you backed this guy all the way. Despite the criticism, he wasn't really popular, especially up north because of his blonde hair and his white boots. But why did you back Percy Montgomery? Um, well, you know, I think one of the things that happened to me so was that a lot of coaches before me had picked number 10s that could kick for poles. And uh, I wasn't convinced on the number 10 jersey at that stage. We played Yaku van and we played Butch James, we played Derek Hochart, we played Andre Pretorius. And I just felt that what other coaches had done in the past is they had always tried to find a goal kicker that played number 10. And one of the things that I worked out is that if I played Monty as a goal kicker at fullback, I could almost experiment with number 10s without feeling that I had to hedge my bets on both. In other words, finding one guy who could do both. And when I brought Monty back, I saw him in Wales. I watched him and he had gone there and he basically was an unbelievable kicker in Wales in those terrible conditions. So I brought, I brought Monty back and... As you know, I mean, one of the things that happened is that his kicking was phenomenal. In fact, you know, one of the stats I, I know from that World Cup is he picked, he kicked 33 penalties in the World Cup and he missed one. Sure. And he only, and he never missed one kick in that stadium where we played the final and the semi-final. So he got every kick over in the final and the semi-final. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I obviously you're right. I did back him. There were times where people were paying for his blood and they didn't want him to play and he wasn't as always the popular, but I think, as I, as, I, as I said to many people, I've got no doubt that Monty will be remembered as a great and one day he'll be inducted in the Hall of Fame and uh, people will say, you know, they'll remember him as a great player. So he's right. When I listen to that, he's right. You've got to coach back players through the difficult times and there were times he, was, he wasn't on top of his game. But 
I mean, how much better could he have been in the World Cup than what he was? And, and I've got no doubt the guy, the way that he played, was a massive influence on our success. Now, before that quarterfinal against Fiji, your job was advertised, the Springbok coaching job, and one of your assistants, Alistair Kutsia, said he would apply. What did you make of the timing during a World Cup tournament? Well, I mean, you, you, you've asked the question and you probably know the answer to this. So, I mean, how can, you, how can you apply for a job when you're halfway through a competition, which is the biggest competition in the world? You know, as I said to them, what do you want me to do? What, what do I put in? Do I put in my CV? I, you know, won the World Cup, lost the World Cup, got to the final, beating. I mean, I didn't really know what to do. I felt, I felt it was almost a way of SA Rugby saying to me that they're finding a new coach. You know, it was almost like a message to me that, listen, you know, we, we on, we on, we on, we're on route to actually find someone to replace you, which is not a great feeling for anybody, you know. And then the same is you beat Argentina. What was interesting is that you brought any else to the change room. Was there any significance to that? Well, you know, yeah, just that day, if you remember that day, it's just by quite a coincidence. And, and I say that day, this is how scary it was. He played in England in the World Champions uh, knockout competition. There was like some knockout competition that they have a match play competition. Oh, yeah. And he had, and he had won the final that day. He actually won the final that day, got into his aeroplane and came to France to watch the semifinal. So I thought it was a great way of, uh, you know, some of the players had watched the golf in the, in the day because we played nighttime in France. And they'd watched him win, and then they saw him walk into the, you know, to the change room and chat to them afterwards, which was a massive boost for them as well because, he, as I said, he had just won the World Match play championships. And it beat an Argentine in Angel Cabrera, and you also beat 100%, Argentina. You are 100% <laughs> to be so I'm impressed. I'm impressed. That's exactly what happened. He had beaten an Argentinian player, uh, Cabrera, in the final. So it yes. was a, it know, a little out. bit of, a little bit of uh, sweetness to us in the change room. And a surprise for young boys to see him walking in there after he had done exactly the same. Yeah. Now, Tabombeki arrives in his private jet or the state's private jet from South Africa. Uh, you said he gave an inspirational speech at, at, at the time, but were you happy with what was happening in the build-up to the final or did you just want to concentrate on the game? No, you know, that's that, interesting. The last week of that tournament, you don't do anything. I mean, that's quite, you know, one of the lessons I learned there is that you can actually become too... Uh, paranoid and you can become too scared and it rubs off on the players and you want to train three times, four times a day and you, you want to give them video lectures and sessions and talk. And, and then I found, you know, that that week they were so calm and collected. We probably trained twice and we had a video session and then having Tablu and Becky there was obviously a massive boost for us as well. You know, I think people rem- remembered what an impact Mandela played in, in 95. And I think when they saw, you know, the president arrive, in Tabu and Becky, they realized that a lot of those little jigsaw puzzles and a lot of their memories they had as youngsters were getting refreshed. And I think that you can't underestimate that. It's like what, what, um, what uh, Henning was saying earlier in the show, to be so. Mm. If your subconscious takes over and if you start seeing things, you remember the little boy watching Mandela in 95 with Francois Pinot, all of a sudden, you know, you, you almost have like a, a feel-good moment when you see your president arrive in the change room and in the team hotel before we're going to go and play. At which stage, Coach Jack White, did you know that the trophy was in the bag against England during that game? The day that I got the job. <laughs> prepare to fail. Fail to prepare, you prepare to fail, right? 100%. And my first speech to the players was, we'll win the World Cup. Because I knew that if I, that my challenge was to get that group of players fit and healthy for four years because they'd been world champions as juniors, both, both those age groups. So... I mean, I had no doubt in my mind. That's like anything. If, you, if you've if you beaten and dominated the same players you're going to play against year after year after year after year, there's no reason why four years later when you've got the same group of players together, you can't win. So I, you know, it's not an arrogant thing as well. I just knew that my challenge was to keep that group of players fit and healthy and happy and make sure that we give them everything they can to win a World Cup. And, and you know, you say at that moment, I mean, I, I, you know, it's not a case of being arrogant. I knew yeah. that long before that we're going to win the World Cup and it was as that game unfolded I could see it happening more and more and more. Are there any similarities from the victory in 07 and the one last year because there were also messages of support played on the bus to the team on their way to the final which is what happened in 07 also. When you look back do you see any coincidence or any similarities coach? I see a lot actually. So I mean I was I was in Japan obviously living there and experiencing what was happening and reading the the news that was coming out of South Africa, you know, how, how the groundswell in South Africa was, you know, fan parks and green, uh, you know, in other green milk bottles and 
green newspapers and and I got the same feeling as as a supporter in Japan that everything was almost the same as it was in 2007 and you know I've said it many times to be so I'll say it again the one thing about South African players is they know how to get to a final and when you get them to a final they win I mean we've never lost a World Cup final and and that tells you a lot. It tells you a lot about the psyche of our players. In 95, we got to the final. People didn't think we should have got there or didn't think we were going to get there. We won it. You know, we got to 2007, got the final, won it. I just think it says something about South Africans. You know, I often, often, I often say to players, one thing we all got to do, and my, my chat to Eddie Jones in that World Cup was, Eddie, all we got to do is coach them to the final. Then we leave them and they win. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Alistair could see a head small. All of us understood that. Our job was to get them there. Their job was to finish it off, and I, and I did get a lot of feeling of that this last time as well. Talking about Eddie Jones, there's a question from uh, Twitter here. It says in his book, he says he's, he got the sense that Jake was upset that he didn't make him part of his team when he got the England job. Did you have a deal to work together if Eddie got the England job? Yeah, I was very upset. I mean, that's actually true. I was very upset. I thought we were going to do it together. Uh, you heard what he said. You know, he spoke really nicely just now about what he thought I could add value to, and I was under the same impression that we would get it together. But you know, it happens in life. Not, not everything. Sometimes you assume things and you mustn't assume those things to, to be so. So, you know, it's sad. It's sad that we didn't work together. I would have, I would have liked to, but, you know, it's, so, it, it's a bit, uh, looking back now, I don't think I would have liked to be with England and having lost to South Africa in the final anyway. Right. So things work out for a reason. Last clip we're playing is from Coach Dave Vessels. No, he took, he took, a, he took a massive chance on me, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm incredibly uh, grateful to, to someone like Jake. Um, for, for that opportunity, you know, I think if I were, if it weren't for that, I'd probably be, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be. Coach of the Rebels, he was also on our show, and he says you took him out of nowhere, Coach. What do you make of his success? Oh, yeah, his rise. I, you know, that's part of, I suppose, part of the nice things about rugby as well, to be said. When you see guys who've come through, you know, one of the nice stories I'll say is I, I, I gave Franz Ludica his very first coaching job. He was a school teacher at Furantu, and he came to coach me. Yeah. With me at Rao University when I was coaching there, and he goes on to to coach, uh, you know, the Blue Bulls to two championships. He's now coaching in Japan. Yeah. You know, I look at a guy like Dave Vessels, who was, you know, a youngster at UCT. I got him to come and do some stuff with me at the Brumbies. Now he's coaching the Rebels. You know, Hetzmal went from South Africa, he went to coach Ireland as a forwards coach. Alistair went on to become the Springbok coach and the Stormers coach. You know, obviously it's it's a it's a really nice thing to know as a coach that when you have people in your staff and they go on to bigger and better things, it's also rewarding for you as a as a coach to know that you played some sort of role in, in their coaching development as well. Thank you. Coach Jack White, our time is up, but thank you very much for giving us your time to talk about your career and, and also how you won that World Cup in 07. I think we've covered a lot and I love, hope people have learned a lot and it's an honour for us to speak to you and we just wanted to highlight what you achieved and give you the respect that you deserve, Coach. Thank you so much, Tabiso. Enjoyed talking to you guys. Have a good evening.